Well, good morning. Lovely to see you here this morning. If you're visiting with us, then a particular welcome to you. It's great to see you here. Talon, really nice to have you with us again for the first time in a while. Uh, if there are others who are visiting for the first time in a while as well, then welcome to this special Good Friday service. Uh, briefly, just want to add my thanks uh, to those that Luke's already given uh, and a few more. Uh, if we've not met, by the way, my name is DJ. Uh, I'm on the pastoral team here. And I wanted to add my thanks to David Carter for uh, leading us this morning with the pipes. Thanks, Diane, again, for, uh, for that hot tip. Uh, it was wonderful. Uh, thanks also to Lara for the lovely Bible reading uh, earlier. Thanks to the, the Musos and team and also to our production team who are currently busy uh, troubleshooting the live stream. Uh, so good on you guys. Uh, and thanks to each of you who's joined us here this morning. Anyone uh, planning to travel, uh, say, by plane out of Sydney in the next few days? Uh, might want to pack some more sandwiches. Uh, could be a queue or two. Uh, as the border closes lift, though, and uh, travel starts to open up, even with delays at times, I'm wondering, what's on your post-pandemic bucket list? Maybe a, a long delayed trip somewhere, perhaps to visit family, maybe skydiving, maybe caravanning around the country. Well, one of the things that was on the top of my bucket list for a long time uh, was to see the Oberammergau Passion Play. That on anybody else's bucket list? Oh, I see a hand or two. We'll come back to Robin in just a moment. Uh, if you're not familiar, Oberammergau is a small village in southern Germany. Every 10 years for the last 400 years, except during world wars and pandemics, this small village has put on what is now a, a theatrical extravaganza based on the passion of Christ. That is the last few days leading up to the res and including the resurrection, sorry, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Actually, this year's event, which kicks off in just over a month's time, I uh, don't know if there are tickets still available. It does run for five months of the year, starting in the middle of May, but uh, it would be very popular. It was delayed for two years because of COVID. The play itself is five hours long, uh, over two sessions, uh, which are precisely two and a half hours long, German engineering at its finest. And the kind of lovely, kind of quirky thing about uh, the Oberammergau Passion Play is that because the cast and crew are all villagers, they all live and work in the village, they've all got day jobs, during the kind of dinner interval, it's perfectly possible that Mary or maybe more likely Martha might serve you your sausage and sauerkraut at a restaurant, or perhaps Judas Iscariot will give you your 30 pieces of silver change when you buy a snow globe in the souvenir shop. Or if you just happen to be wandering behind the beer house at the wrong time, you might see Jesus sneaking a cigarette as we did because 10 years ago in 2010 Lou and I were able to tick the Oberammergau passion play off our bucket list along as it turns out with some other new viners and, and ex-new viners including Robin Fischler uh, and also Greg and Sherlene Robson uh, and uh, a broader team as well and look it was it was absolutely amazing um, you can ask Robin all about it afterwards the peak moment of course in the Passion Play is when Christ is crucified, uh, sans cigarette uh, in this instance. 
It's a pretty lifelike portrayal and it's pretty heart-wrenching. But as well as the crucifixion scene, one of the most intriguing aspects of the Passion Play for me was the interaction between Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, the Jewish leaders, and Jesus himself during the lead-up to the crucifixion scene. But even in the original records of this encounter, such as in John's Gospel, which we heard from Lara a little bit earlier, even that encounter is, is fascinating and it's laden with meaning at so many levels. And today on Good Friday, as we draw near to the end of our series of God You Can Believe In, which we'll wrap up on Sunday, I want to briefly pause to look at this sometimes kind of obscure interchange, which is nevertheless critical to, uh, to John's account of the Easter story and fills in some extra layers of understanding to what is a very familiar story to many of us. Now, if you aren't familiar with the story in detail, then a quick explainer. According to some traditions, Pontius Pilate was Scottish. Might have known how to play the bagpipes uh, even, perhaps. Uh, by the way, did you know that the bagpipes are the only musical instrument ever to be banned as a weapon of war? There's a few people thinking, yeah, I can imagine that. Maybe a weapon of torture. But it was lovely this morning. I, I do have a soft spot for the, the bagpipes. Anyway, well, Scottish or not, uh, Pilate uh, was uh, a, according to various historical sources, including this one, a 2,000 year inscription from Caesarea in modern Israel, which refers to Pilate as the uh, prefect of Ju uh, Judea at the time. Pilate was probably a career politician. He uh, maybe rose up to the ranks as an ex-soldier or something like this. And we know that he ruled in Judea for about 10 years up till 37 AD, so after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. And we know also from historical sources that he was eventually kicked out of office uh, by his superiors for bullying and, and offensive behaviour uh, towards the Jews. And in the Gospel of John, we get a kind of hints of that sort of behaviour in his encounter with Jesus. Now, for the sake of time, I'm just, and we've had the passage read to us, I'm just going to kind of paraphrase the key parts of the passage. But let me unpack, let me back up just a little bit to start with, in case uh, this is all a bit new to you. Now, at this stage... In the eyewitness account of Jesus, according to John, Jesus has been arrested just outside Jerusalem by a detachment of Roman soldiers and Jewish officials. Then Jesus is paraded before two of the highest Jewish head poobars, Annas and his son Caiaphas, the high priest, basically on a charge of blasphemy. Now, under the Jewish law, blasphemy carried a death sentence. But think about perhaps... Uh, modern Pakistan or, or Afghanistan under the Taliban. But under a kind of power-sharing arrangement between Imperial Rome and the local Jewish leaders, only the Romans themselves could authorise an execution. So early the next morning, Jesus is taken by the Jewish leaders to Pilate, the, le the highest legal authority in the land. And the religious leaders seem to kind of know that their case is a bit dodgy. But nevertheless, they press Pilate to order Jesus' execution. And Pilate questions Jesus, and he finds there's really no case under Roman law to detain him, certainly not to execute him. But the Jewish leaders clamour instead for the release of Barabbas, who ironically 
uh, with someone we don't know much about except that he was guilty uh, of actual sedition against Rome. This is from the, it's a little bit hard to see, Jesus in the foreground, Pilate sort of in the middle looking down towards Jesus and behind him uh, Barabbas uh, tied up with a rope. That's from the Oberammergau uh, book. So Pilate questions Jesus, finds there's nothing to see here and wants to let him go. And then we come to chapter 19, which was read for us uh, so beautifully by Lara. Perhaps hoping to placate the Jewish leaders, Pilate sends Jesus out to be flogged. And in, some pro- in the process, they take some, uh, uh, make a fake crown, possibly of thorns from the date palm or something similar. And they put him in a purple cape to mock him as a false king. Pilate tries again to release him and brings him out to the crowd and delivers his famous line, Ecce Homo, behold, or here is the man. And clearly he's saying to the Jewish leaders, look, this man is no threat to you, he's no threat to Caesar, he's pathetic, he's stripped, he's beaten, he's uh, bleeding, he's a mocked pretender. But the chief priests and their henchmen continue to cry, crucify, crucify. Anyway, they back and forth, but the Jewish leaders insist that Jesus has committed a capital offense under their law by claiming to be the Son of God. And we read in the text this sort of strange line at this stage that suddenly Pilate was very much afraid. Well, why? Why why would this claim suddenly make Pilate very afraid? Perhaps a likely explanation is that to superstitious Roman ears, the claim to be a son of God was far more worrying than the claim to be a human king. Upstart kings could be killed. Rome was good at that. The gods, on the other hand, were a different matter. And they were also good at killing. Potentially, Pilate is caused to wonder if Jesus could be some kind of a god from the Roman pantheon itself, visiting the human world. Remember that the Greek and Roman gods were thought to interact with human mortals going back and forth between the divine and the human world. Think about the Marvel movies, for example. And Jupiter, who was the Roman Zeus, was said to have had many affairs with mortal women, the offspring of whom were thought to have semi-divine powers, godlike kind of powers. Maybe this is what's going on in Pilate's mind. Or maybe there was something else, because Mercury, the son of Jupiter, i.e. the son of the high God, was particularly believed by the Roman religion to travel between the divine and human world so as to transport souls to the underworld, something that might kind of make you a little bit scared, particularly if you just had this... uh, Son of God, whipped, right? This would also explain perhaps why Pilate asked Jesus, where do you come from? I.e., are you from beyond? Are you from around here? That's right. Are you human or divine? And it might also explain why Jesus doesn't answer Pilate at this stage, because how does he respond, right? Yes, I'm God incarnate. I've come down from the heavens without being totally kind of misunderstood in that context by the pagan kind of mindset, and also perhaps derailing his own date with destiny. Frustrated, Pilate must assume that Jesus would have at this stage fessed up if he was Mercury or similar. And he says, do you refuse to speak to me? 
don't you realize I have the power to set you free or to crucify you? To which Jesus answered this kind of fascinating line. You would have no power over me if it wasn't given to you from above. Possibly Pilate understands this reference as a reference to the power of Caesar in Rome, or possibly he's still nervous about the whole Son of God thing. But regardless, he seems set on, Je on setting Jesus free. The Jewish leaders have their own power play to make. They play their trump card. And that is that they threaten Pilate himself with the charge of treason. Let this man go, you are letting go an enemy of Caesar. And we all know that Caesar's pretty touchy about that kind of thing. It's a cheap threat, but Pilate relents and takes Jesus before the judge's seat. He taunts the Jew Jewish leaders again, which results in what, from the Jewish leaders, may be their most damning statement of all. We have no God, we have no king, sorry, but Caesar. And this is so full of irony in the story. Those who'd just been talking to Pilate about treason now commit the same against their own God and king. By swearing allegiance not only to the despised Roman ruler, who none of them really liked, but to a false god. Because Tiberius, the Roman emperor, as we saw from the, the Pilate stone and a few weeks ago, was himself regarded as a divine being. In fact, that Pilate stone that we saw earlier was, seems like it was a dedication to a temple built to honour and worship the emperor. Now, even, uh, even you and I can get how much that is a betrayal of their own God and king. Well, finally, Pilate's had enough, and Jesus, carrying his own cross, is led by the Roman guard to Golgotha, the execution site. And we read these kind of powerful words, simple and chilling. Here they crucified him. Now, this is such a, a momentous moment, such a central event in the Christian faith and psyche that it almost feels like story should sort of pause here for a sailor or a, a minute silence or something. Instead, this, this strange exchange with Pilate about Jesus between the Jews and, and Pilate, etc., continues. When Pilate insists that a notice be placed above Jesus in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek that reads, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And again, the irony here is that this sign proclaimed to the world in three of its major languages what John's readers knew to be true, that Jesus was indeed the king of Israel, its rightful king. In fact, it's thick with irony because no less, in, no less than seven times in this passage does Pilate and his men declare that Jesus is the king. Scornfully, mockingly, of course, but nevertheless, they are truth-telling in this setting. And then if you're following along uh, in your Bible, there are two sidebars here about the soldiers gambling for his clothes and a series of other incidents. 
which all show that this fulfills these Old Testament scriptures. Psalm 22, Psalm 69, Isaiah 53. We, we don't have time to dig into all of that. But then John records that knowing everything had been finished, Jesus is given a drink of cheap, sour soldiers' wine, the chief stuff, presumably from one of the more sympathetic soldiers nearby. Maybe even the one who goes on to declare soon, surely this man was the Son of God. He's given that drink and then he declares, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head, gave up his spirit. John emphasizing here that even to the end, Jesus had agency. He chose when to give up his life, his spirit. It was he who decided in the end that it was finished. But what exactly is finished? And why does John include all of this extended preamble about the encounter with Pilate and Jesus and the Jewish leaders? What is going on here? Why bother including all of that? Well, actually, in the, the key lies here. In the Greek, the phrase, it is finished, is just one word. Tetelestai. Now, this word comes from the Greek word telos. Anybody seen this word somewhere around? Telos or telos? And in Greek philosophy, the telos of something means the ultimate purpose, the ultimate goal or objective of a person or a thing. So when Jesus declares tetelestai, it is finished or it's accomplished, he seems to be suggesting that his mission on earth is accomplished. His entire purpose, his entire reason for being, the reason that the word became flesh, as John tells us in chapter 1, has been realized and fulfilled. So what was that reason? Well, even if you're not a regular churchgoer, you probably know the Easter story well enough to know that Jesus died for our sins. And that's true. But Jesus' mission was multifaceted. Drawing on this passage and John's gospel more widely, let me highlight just three crucial aspects of Jesus' mission. And if these were keys to Jesus' mission, we might say, uh, no disrespect intended of course, that these three things were at the top of Jesus' bucket list. Except for where you and I, a bucket list is something we want to see fulfilled before we die. For Jesus, his bucket list were the things he fulfilled when he died. Firstly, the first thing is Jesus came to tell us the truth about God. And that as we've been seeing in this series to date, if you've missed the series, I'd encourage you to go back and on YouTube, uh, Google New Vine Online and perhaps watch some of the previous messages. But he showed us a God we can believe in. We can unpack this another time, but a major theme in the book of John is that Jesus makes known to us God as God actually is, not as many imagine him to be. So we see the word becoming flesh, that is God speaking himself to us and to our world in Jesus. But what is this truth about God that we learn in Jesus? Well, the greatest truth is revealed most clearly in this moment on 
the cross. And that is that God loves us to death. Not a sentimental, schmaltzy kind of love. A gutsy, gritty, give your life for your friends, your loved ones, for the world kind of love. And as we'll see on Sunday, God not only loves us to death, he loves us back to life again. But that's still to come. Stay tuned. Secondly, as well as to tell us the truth about God, Jesus comes to fix what is broken and to fix up the bill. Sins is a kind of loathed and loaded word these days, isn't it? Somehow it just kind of seems so judgy. But rather than think of sin just as the kind of the naughty things that people think and do, as well as the more serious stuff, perhaps it's better to think of sin more fundamentally as the brokenness in the human machinery, a deep brokenness that causes us to break other things and other people and somehow to break even the planet we live on. When Jesus cries on the cross, it is finished. He means he has done what is needed to repair broken people and a broken planet. And he does so by fixing the root cause, a broken relationship to the God who loves us to death. And from that flows the possibility of fixing everything else. With more time, we could see, for example, that Jesus' cry, Tetelestai, on the cross, echoes the completion of the creation story itself way back in Genesis 2. Here we read that the heavens and the earth were completed. comes from the same word, telos, in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished, again, from the same word, telos, the work that he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all of his work. With more time, uh, sorry, here the cry suggests Jesus has completed a new work of creation. Or perhaps better, a work of of new creation, which now invades the old. And as God the Creator rested on the seventh day, so Jesus too invade, uh, sorry, rests, having finished his work. With more time, we could also see that tetelestai is a word which you might use to say when a debt is settled, a bill is paid, a relationship is restored, a debt forgiven. We might say that Jesus not only repairs what is broken, he does so by paying the repair bill itself. So that's two things at the top of the bucket list. The third thing is that thing with Pilate. Jesus' third purpose that we see in this story in John is to take up his kingly crown and put empire and evil on notice. Now bear with me here just a moment. Aristotle, who lived before Christ, said that humans are political animals. You've heard that phrase, right? What he meant was we're social creatures who get together in groups, in families and villages and cities. And and that means that we must therefore put in place some kind of order, someone to lead, structures, organization, government, politics. But inevitably, broken people break 
build broken systems, broken structures, broken power relationships. Power structures that gather people, sorry, gather power to people greedy for it. Power structures that oppress opposition. Power structures that cause injustice. Power structures that execute innocent people. Such broken power systems also need fixing. So when Jesus and Pilate meet in chapters 18 and 19 of John's gospel, we see a confrontation of powers. Not just religion versus empire, but religion and empire colluding together against God. What we see in Jesus in response to Pilate and on the cross is God's way of wielding power. We see Pilate who represents Caesar and the might of Rome and all Caesars and all Romes and all presidents and all parliaments and all corporate empires and human power structures. And over and against that, we see a God who refuses to take up the sword. A God who rejects violence. A God who refuses to make a power play or play a trump card, though the power of heaven itself is at his fingertips. Instead of fighting back, he opts to fix us up. He loves not only his friends to death, he dies also for those who hate him, those who oppose him, those who visit violence and injustice and evil upon God himself and set themselves up as God, God's against him. His power is to heal the world. And he does it by loving it to death. In this encounter, we see that the power of Caesar and ambition and empire are just a parody of true power, true justice, true sovereignty. In Jesus' declaration from the cross, Tetelestai, it's finished. We hear a proclamation of victory over the broken rulers and the broken power structures which perpetuate the brokenness in our world. And while it may seem that evil and, evil and empire has won on that Friday, the thing about Good Friday is we know how the story ends. Because as Tony Campolo used to say, remember Tony Campolo? He's an old guy now, he's still around. As Tony Campolo used to say, it's Friday, but Sundays are coming. And the genius of true power, the power of God revealed in Christ on the cross, is that it can take evil itself and transform its outcomes into something magnificent. That power is only the power of love, a love to die for. So, as we close, the three things on Jesus' bucket list to reveal the truth about God, that he loves us to death, that he is a God we can believe in. Secondly, to fix what's broken and pay the bill. Thirdly, to take up his kingly crown, which as it happens, 
is a crown of thorns because our king rules as the crucified king who is healing the world through his injury. And one day we'll heal it entirely. So what's on your bucket list? (laughs) If his love is so amazing, if his grace is so amazing, if his love is so amazing, so divine, that he would give his life for you and I, what does that demand of you and I in return? If he died for us, how might we live for him? Well, I don't know about you, but I think my post-pandemic bucket list needs a little bit of a rethink post-Easter. And we're going to pick that up on Sunday. For now, we're going to close our Good Friday service with communion together. In communion, of course, we remember this love so amazing, this love of Christ on the cross. cross. We remember it not just with our minds or even our hearts. We remember it with our teeth and our taste buds, our bellies and our bodies. We take these physical reminders, the, the, the buns as it is today, and the juice, the bread, the wine, if you like, and we seek again the spiritual nourishment of physically remembering this most solemn of moments. His body broken for you, his blood poured out for you. Take, eat in remembrance of Christ's love on the cross, a love to die for. Come forward in your own time now, perhaps with your families or as appropriate. Take these uh, representative signs and symbols. There's some at the front here. I think they're all at the front here today. Is that right? No, some at the back there as well. And take them back to your seats. If you've not done this with us before, uh, take it back to your seats. Feel free to reflect, pray, and remember the love of God for a few moments. And then just eat and drink, remembering Jesus in your own time as the band plays this beautiful hymn. Thanks, guys.